This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 67, recorded today on September 29th of 2017. I'm your host, Neelay Shaw from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, pinch hitting for our boss, Tim Kreit. Uh, we are affiliated with Ohio State University. I'm here along with my co-hosts, Ryan Roberts. Hey, good to be here. And Carrie Streeby. Hey, everyone. And today, we're very pleased to have with us uh, our guest, Dr. Mitchell Cairo. Hello. How you doing? We awesome. are excited to have you here. We have just uh, heard a, a, a very expansive but uh, but fantastic talk um, from Dr. Cairo on his expertise in AYA uh, disease and particularly leukemias and lymphomas. We're going to dive into that in just a second uh, as a brief intro. If you have any questions or comments about today's podcast, even if you're listening to it it's a long time from now, please email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. And we'd be happy to read your email and discuss it in a future episode. And one of these days, we're going to have an email. So that said, Dr. Cairo, uh, Dr. Kripe always likes to hear a little bit about everyone's story. So what led you here? What, what got you invested in Pete's cancers and uh, into what you do now? Well, like everyone, you have different pathways to how you get to where you are. Mine was first, uh, I had thought I was going to be a pharmacist. Um, and, uh, that was my plan. I was a high school student working at Walgreens and that was the pathway I chose. And then this last summer of high school, I worked in a very poor neighborhood in Chicago. <clears throat> and, uh, all I saw was a lot of people lacking good health care. And by the time I finished that summer high school, I decided I wanted to be a physician. And, uh, I was fortunate enough <clears throat> to get accepted to UCSF or University of California, San Francisco. And on my very first clerkship in my third year, I met um, a girl with acute myeloid leukemia. And and not to, to date you or anything, but what what year about was that? Well, it was when the Grateful Dead were very uh, <laughs> active in the Bay Area. And uh, it was uh, approximately 1974. Wow. And just... The idea of seeing children with uh, blood diseases, a lot of sickle cell as well, and uh, knowing that there was a lot to be done for these patients and uh, the opportunity of uh, taking part in their cure and their long-term involvement, as well as the exciting science of hematology, oncology, and immunology and genetics, it sort of all came together that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. That's fantastic. And then from there, your training went on to... Yeah, so when I finished there, uh, I did my pediatric residency at UCLA, and then I came back to UC San Francisco for chief residency in pediatrics. And then I did a pediatric hematology oncology fellowship with Bob Boehner and Larry Boxer at Indiana University. Since then, you've uh, you've continued forward, and it seems like hematologic uh, malignancies in particular have been the, the thing that grabbed you. What was the first thing that kind of caught you, and that was a, the, the research you're doing in the lab? Was it a, a clinical challenge? What kind of led you down that path? 
Well, at that time, again, the cure rate wasn't that great for childhood leukemia and lymphoma, so it was a lot of opportunity. You know, made up close to 40 to 50% of all the pediatric cancers. Um, and the there was emerging data about genetics and immunology and the roles that they played that uh, attracted me that kind of all of my interests uh, would be best fit into that area. Not that I don't have interests in other areas, but that was the main driver for at least a few decades. And obviously there have been a lot of advances uh, uh, over that time. What, what do you think was really the, the biggest uh, stimulus forward in, in making us uh, able to, to make these leaps in, in pediatrics? Do you think that it was a drug thing? Do you think it was a specific genetic discovery? Or do you think it's just been an ongoing evolution? Well, I think it was a couple. I, I think that it was the genius of a few people saying that we all had to work together uh, because of the rarity of the diagnosis. As you know, only you know, 12 to 15,000 cases in the U.S. a year, that to have any meaningful clinical research that working together was critical. The second was that we had to come at it from a multidisciplinary aspect, which meant it can't be just pediatric oncologists. We needed many other disciplines, uh, scientific disciplines, surgical disciplines, nursing, pharmacy, social work, psychology, uh, etc. I think that was the second. And the third was the early successes that we had in randomized sh- studies showing 20, 30, 40% increase in long-term survivals just on simple randomized trials, I think, got the field, particularly in hemolignancies, moving forward. The solid tumors were definitely not moving as rapidly in, in the early days uh, but it was the hemolignancies that I think took took off and led the way for um, some of the other uh, diagnoses to have similar trajectories. So today you showed us, I mean, you've had the opportunity really to be very intimately involved in a really longitudinal evolution of the way that we treat these cancers and, and, in, and in a lot of cancers where we've seen just complete changes in the natural history of the disease based on treatment. What is it that has driven that success, really? So, I mean, if, you know, you met, you mentioned earlier, we've had a lot of success with a number of our heme malignancies, maybe not so much with some of our other diseases. What do you think made that happen? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I, I would Three sort of come to mind. Um, I, you know, I think the first, um, even though institutions don't like to hear this, but really people matter, <laughs> and that uh, good leaders who have good ideas and are collegial and collaborative make a critical difference. I think there were people like that. Uh, I think the second advantage the hemolignancies had was many but not all were also ongoing in the adult setting where there were a larger number of patients and they had access to agents that we wanted to adopt. It wasn't always like that. I can give you an example of one uh, where the pediatric people led the way. And a third, which was not as well understood at the time, was that many of these were tumors that were rapidly dividing uh, in a way that was so much greater than solid tumors and brain cancers 
that in the days where we were just applying chemotherapy, they were likely going to be more successful than in solid tumors where there was this lack of his uh, rapidity in, in cell proliferation where chemotherapy by itself likely wasn't going to have as many successes in. So when I think you add that all together, uh, but particularly the first uh, lead leaders who could bring together multi-disciplines, I think was critical in this evolution. You you mentioned uh, um, there is one that comes to mind that where Peds really led the way. Can you can you tell us about that a little bit more? Yeah. So without appearing uh, you know specific for me, in the question that was asked earlier, one of the ways you sort of have to make progress in these environments is to not do what I call workarounds or skipping things that may be relevant. So in this case, uh, since I had a major interest in Burkitt's lymphoma, one of the impediments of curing Burkitt's lymphoma was the fact that it's the fastest growing human cancer. It has a dividing time of every 24 hours. Yep. And the complications associated with that is called something called tumor lysis syndrome. So I could do a lot of different therapeutic things, but at the end of the day, tumor lysis syndrome was still a problem. We were unable to give. (laughs) uh, It was a risk of death, and it prevented us from being uh, as aggressive as we wanted to. So I had to take a side path into tumor lysis syndrome. And at that time, I became aware of a drug being developed in Europe uh, called uh, recombinate urate oxidase or rasburacase wasn't available in the U.S. The non-recombinant form wasn't developed in the U.S. available, and so I went to the company and I said, "Tumor lysis syndrome is more a pediatric cancer problem than adult cancer problem, and you need to do the pediatric studies before you do the adult studies." And they kind of looked at me like maybe I wasn't really on my <laughs> full game that day. Maybe you weren't well. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't well, and uh, but I persisted as I can be and ultimately convinced them that the first studies that should be done in tumor lysis syndrome were in children. And we ran uh, the pivotal trial. And based on that pivotal trial, uh, this drug was approved in pediatric cancer and leukemia and lymphoma six years before it got approved in adults. But it solved the problem that I had with raising the cure rate in Burkitt's lymphoma because I needed to fix the tumor lysis problem. And I drifted a little bit off and we developed definitions and grading systems and all kinds of things. But if you're not looking at it from a 360 perspective, then you're always going to be limited because if you're not looking at all of the problems, you're never going to get to the final solution. And might we all say thank you for us. Yes. <laughs> it is that, a that wonderful is a, drug. It is. And, and obviously, uh, you know, all of us in Pete's cancer use that for uh, a number of, of the disease types of the spine. I actually hadn't been aware of, of that aspect of the story. So that's fantastic to hear. So you mentioned that you had to be persistent with the drug company. And that's a challenge that we're still facing today is convincing drug companies to reach out for kids' cancers and to supply us with drugs for kids' cancers. What advice would you give to, say, people at our level or above who are struggling with convincing drug companies that we need to have access to these new drugs for kids? Yeah, well, that's a really critical question, and you've hit one of my uh, 
passion points, so I'll, I'll try to do this in a more calm way. Um, <laughs> free to, to oh, be yeah. irrational. You're welcome. To we can that. edit. It's okay. <laughs> so I think there's two things. So the first thing that I always try to do is get involved in the preclinical evaluation, get a reputation, not just for the company, but your colleagues, that you actually know something, you've contributed something to this area, and there's now a logical reason why mm -hmm. this should be done as opposed to, oh, I just think it's probably going to work. It's worked in similar situations that you've actually done a lot of the preclinical work. And this has worked very well for me. Um, I did a number of trials uh, in the Children's Cancer Group and Children's Oncology Group because we had already done a lot of preclinical work. It convinced my colleagues that I was the right person. It also convinced the company. Mm -hmm. But the second, which is one that's not easy to teach, which is um, this is where you sort of have to draw the line in the sand. And while you want to be professional about it, as I tried to be with this company with Rasburicase, they need to see that you're holding the ground on this, that you're really serious about it, that that this is not just a whim, it's not a passion, it's that this is a righteous thing that needs to be done. And as you know, we talked earlier today, it was a shame that it took almost, give or take, 10 years before we actually got rituximab into children which to me was really totally unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And we had to work very, very hard, not just to convince the company, but to convince the NCI that it was important to test this drug in children with B-cell lymphomas. So I try to be, you know, diplomatic and professional, but I also try to convince them that there is compelling scientific reason why that they need to make the drug available and not only make the drug available, but provide support for it to be done. I think the government could do more. I think that the government is not as forceful as it is in Europe. So now, as you know, in Europe, every drug that's approved has to be have a pediatric investigation plan. If there's any relevance at all in pediatric cancer or pediatric diseases, known as the PIP, we don't have such available in the U.S. And I think more of that has to be mandated that, as an example, crizotinib would never have been tested in children with anaplastic large cell lymphoma if it wasn't an active agent in non-small cell lung cancer. Mm -hmm. But more of that sort of persistence, little stubbornness, <laughs> little cajoling, you know. And what I find, unfortunately, is that among my colleagues, people tend to be a little shy, a little mm. reticent, not wanting to challenge, not wanting to question why the company is not being supportive. I'm not sure that's going to get us a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Being silent when something is not being done right isn't going to help correct the problem. I mean, I mean at the end of the day, we have to be, I mean, we have to work in teams as academics, right? And if we want to bring drugs to patients, part of that team is the pharmaceutical industry. And I think we have to recognize our need for them and and they uh, and show them value mm -hmm. in in the work that they're doing. I, I think yeah. I think one thing that you mentioned, kind of alluded to. I've had relationships with several pharmaceutical companies, and they're they're always happy when you bring them data, <laughs> right? That supports the work that you want to do. And I think working like that to show them 
well, this is kind of a no-brainer, you know. Well, it's a is an example <clears throat> that we didn't get time to cover that, but uh, the new BTK inhibitor, ibrutinib, mm-hmm. that's been out for four or five years for chronic lymphocytic leukemia and mantle cell lymphoma. While Burkitt's is not a similar disease in that it has a different sort of cycling than CLL and mantle, it still has activation of BTK. So we went to the company. We signed a mass uh, material transfer agreement. They actually gave us some support on top of it. And we did a bunch of clinical preclinical studies showing that there is activity in Burkitt's, maybe not completely as a single agent, but could be used in combination. And that was the genesis of them now testing it in this relapse setting uh, for pediatric uh, disease. So I, I agree with your, what you're saying is that sometimes you it, it can't be just, I have a good idea, I think it might work in this disease, but you actually have something that's compelling, like climate change. Um <laughs> That uh, <laughs> that people need to listen to. So, of your different projects that you're involved with at this point, um, you know it's, it's a lot of different uh, drug types, uh, immunomodulators, checkpoint inhibitors, uh, small molecules, as well as lots of different diseases. There one right now that's really kind of got your ear and is a bit of a, a passion project for you. Something you want to talk about or is ready to talk about? Yeah. So uh, this is one that uh, we're hoping to involve your program. I uh, had a brief discussion uh, with your sarcoma group and Dr. Lee, your new cell therapy director, has known about it for a while. So there's a new drug that's been um, in a number of adult clinical trials that is what we call an interleukin-15 uh, super agonist. Um, this is a well-designed drug, I think, um, from somebody who was involved in designing interleukin-2 uh, back in the 80s. And it doesn't have anywhere the toxicity profile that recombinant human IL-15 has had, which never got to the market. And it's a very profound inducer of T-cells and NK cells, both in terms of proliferation and functional activation, and particularly antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. And there are at least a dozen or more active adult cancer trials and HIV trials, and we've been doing a lot of preclinical work on this and we hope any day now the company is going to agree the protocols written where we would uh, test this in children for the first time alone and in combination with an antibody uh, called anti-GD2, uh, which is present in many pediatric solid tumors. Um, and then ultimately, if this looks safe, then in combination with your colleagues, Dr. Lee and others, we want to add expanded NK cells mm-hmm. and potentially uh, work that we're doing, uh, CAR NK cells. So... This is the one that I'm really trying to translate into the pediatric uh, oncology area soon, and the protocol's done, and sitting with the company, and we've been, what were the words I used, controlling and um, <laughs> encouraging, uh-huh. and, sure. and uh, we're pretty close. So to, to kind of demystify that a little bit for some of our, our more lay listeners, the idea here is that you take this chemical, this interleukin-15, or this, uh, uh, that mimics what's a, a natural product in us, and it turns the immune system in the patients on to, uh, to attack their cancers? That's exactly right. And while we haven't done the studies yet, I think there's some adult ongoing studies of actually trying to combine it with the other drugs that we call checkpoint blockade inhibitors that do a similar thing. In that case, of course, we're, that's, those kind of drugs are turning the brakes off. 
we're not turning the brakes off. We're just turning on the accelerator, right. if you will, and doing it in a fine way that it, it, the uh, cells are going to even be more wanting to kill than they had been before. So over the course of your career, you've been involved in many types of work, right? So obviously you've done a lot of science. You've done a lot of been involved in a lot of clinical trials and even led a number of those. You've done a lot of administration and building programs, and you've been a mentor to a number of people, especially within the clinical trials realm. Of all the things that you've done, what brings you satisfaction, and has that changed over the course of your career? One has, one hasn't. So I and let's not forget the patients that you've yes, cared for. Yes, so too. I'll start yeah. out with the one that hasn't changed, which is. Uh, putting a smile on a patient and their family when they've been cured and being able to see them grow uh, into adulthood. I was just at a Rod Carew charity golf outing. I took care of Rod Carew's daughter back uh, in the 80s. And this young man shows up who's about 42, who I hadn't seen for a long time. And it was the 30th anniversary of his bone marrow transplant I did with him. Uh, when he was 16, so he was roughly 46 now, maybe. And he had his 21-year-old son with him, and he brought his mother, who I hadn't seen in 30 years. <laughs> uh, doesn't get any better from that, um, That's from a cool. patient. But the one that I think has changed is grants are great, publications are great, program building's great, but the next equal is mentoring. It just been an old-fashioned mentor in that uh, I've had four jobs and I've been fellowship director in all four jobs, so almost 35 years of of being fellowship director. Nothing better than seeing a fellow or young intermediate level faculty member just blossom and be successful and contribute. It's a great run. I wouldn't have thought of that early in my career because I didn't know mentoring would be all that satisfactory, but now it's a major part of what I like doing, which is why I enjoyed the day today. You were very uh, thoughtful in how you scheduled the day around. I got to spend with a lot of young and uh, faculty and fellows. Um, I certainly enjoy the publications, the grants, and it certainly keeps me going, and it's exciting. And I see the accomplishments that come from it. But I think the two at the top are still curing patients and training people. Oh, that's fantastic. And as a intermediate career person <laughs> i i am uh, encouraged by that so any final thoughts you'd like to share with us before we uh, we close up for the day no i you know i'm getting to if you want to call it the plateau or um because pinnacle still, let's call it yeah the yeah. pinnacle there the pinnacle of my career <laughs> i still enjoy it as much now as i did when i was a fellow and a first year faculty member it's just a great field uh, patients are great. The multidisciplinary interactions now, the national, international, which I didn't know about in the beginning, uh, are great. And I think for any uh, person listening, whether young or old, you can still do career adjustments. I'll end with a, a, a final note, if you give me a minute. Sure. So when you asked me early on about what got me excited, the other area that got me excited was sickle cell disease. But as my career evolved, and many of ours do, we, because of the numbers of patients and also progress and things, I tended to drift more into oncology and cell therapy, transplant immunology. But about 20 years ago, and I can't tell you exactly what it was, I just turned around and I said, I need to do something for sickle cell disease. I'm just not happy 
they have what we consider a benign disease, but the behavior is malignant. Mm-hmm. And if, as all of you know, when they get to be adolescents and young and middle-aged adults, the disease gets worse and worse. And I said, why don't I apply what I learned in oncology to sickle cell disease? Multi-center, multidiscipline, novel, curative. What can I do in that direction? And since only one in six sickle cell patients is going to have a tissue match sibling who doesn't have sickle cell disease, I figured, well, that means there's 85% that don't have a chance for a cure. And I tried the route of using alternative donors, first unrelated core blood donors, an area I know about. Um, others tried the match unrelated donors. And I decided that every child has a parent, right? And most parents are willing to help their children. And if I can do mismatched transplants in patients with cancer, why can't I do this in sickle cell disease? So I came up with this idea, got an R01 grant to do it, formed a multi-center consortium. And we the reason you were hearing earlier from Anthony, uh, I just got my R01 renewed yesterday. So I was in a really good mood when I landed. <laughs> Congratulations. Yep. And so basically we just finished a 20th patient and we now have an event-free survival of 88% in doing haploidentical transplants using uh, CD34 enrichment T-cell addback regimen. And now we're moving into the next stage and involving young adults. And for any of you who've taken care of sickle cell patients who are chronically ill and in the hospital, and then you see them completely cured with a absolutely normal life, not sure there's a better exciting thing in life than to be able to do that. And I would never have thought I would circle my career back around, kind of reinvent myself, if you will, try to apply what I learned in other areas and bring it to a population that's still not curable, although we're excited about gene therapy. We're not there yet. And so I did that at a later age in life, and it's gangbusters now. We're really excited. We've added more centers. We talked to Jeff and Hema today about joining the study. We've got a lot of money. And um, it's exciting new frontier in my career, and I'm just jazzed about it. No, that's, what, and that's awesome. And for those of you at home, you, you can see the glee on, on Dr. Gabbard's <laughs> face. Which really just, that doesn't come across, across well on the pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's fantastic. And, you know, it, it is a, a theme that we've heard uh, before on the podcast about uh, really the leaders in the field who, who keep their eyes open and seeing what the ongoing challenges are and never just resting on their laurels. So, so that's fantastic to hear. So, well, thank you again, Dr. Cairo, for, for your time and, uh, and for uh, spending it with us and with our listeners today. So, looks like that's it for this week. Uh, thanks to Dr. Cairo. Thanks to my co-hosts, Dr. Roberts and Dr. Streeby. We're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you can send us a note at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children, particularly today and the second day to the last day of Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, Director of Communications, and to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.